Hello, I'm Dan McMillan, Head of PR at Vitality, and I'll be chairing the first Vitality at Work podcast of 2018. Today we're at the Arsenal training ground in Hertfordshire to talk about how to make healthy food choices rather than falling for food fads that have no long-term benefits. But first, I'd like to introduce you to our panellists. Ari Zadikoff is a Vitality Behaviour Change expert, and actually by training, he is a key member of the team developing products and initiatives aimed at helping people get healthier. Andy McGill is Vitality's head coach. He works with organisations across the UK and advises them on how they can make their workforces healthier, happier and more productive. And finally, I'm delighted to welcome Richard Allison, performance nutritionist at Arsenal Football Club. He joined the club in July, having previously worked at Aspatar Orthopaedic and Sports Medicine Hospital in Qatar. Prior to this, he spent two years at Scottish Rugby. Welcome all. Thank you. Uh, thanks, Sam. Um, so, uh, there's been a lot in the news lately about the UK's obesity crisis. So, I mean, in the last few weeks, there's been research from Cancer Research UK um, showing how millennials are set to be the most overweight generation on record. Um, and the Office for National Statistics recently revealed that the average Britain consumes 50% more calories than they realise. Um, so, I mean, Ari, Vitality does a lot around encouraging its members to understand their health. Would you think that much of this crisis is being fueled by people simply not understanding how to eat healthily. Um, yeah, Dan, I, I think you've uh, you've probably hit it uh, hit the nail on the head there. Um, you know, if we look at our vitality age data and uh, that, that we gather through our health reviews that members take, uh, which effectively uh, gives members an understanding of of uh, what their their choices, how their health choices are actually impacting on their lifestyle. Um, we can actually unearth some very interesting things about nutrition and the impact that, that nutrition is, is having on, on members. So as an example, we, we actually looked at approximately 90,000 members and, uh, and compared their, their health reviews for two years um, and, uh, and found that the number at risk for, uh, for nutrition compared to the number at risk for physical activity was actually 63% higher for nutrition, showing that, I- indicating that you know, members... Um, uh, were far greater at risk for nutrition. However, when, when assessed on, on their willingness to change, uh, there was actually a 40% lower willingness for members to change their nutrition habits um, compared, to, compared to that of physical activity. And, uh, and similarly, when we, when we actually assessed in the second year whether those members actually did change their behaviours and moved from the at-risk group to the um, uh, to the healthy group, we found that there was a 33% greater shift for the physical activity, uh, for, for the members that were at risk for physical activity. So it's, it's quite clear that, uh, that members and people have a, a far greater understanding of when their physical activity habits are at risk compared to that of their nutrition. Um, yeah. Okay. Well, uh, Richard, I mean, in your experience, uh, is, that, is, that, is that the case? And why do you think that is? I think, firstly, you know, we're, we're bombarded with lots of different diets and, and like I say, fad diets and what have you. And most people want immediate and spectacular results. So they'll try a, they'll try a paleo or, or a different type of diet and they won't get the results they want immediately. And then they'll quit and revert, revert back to their old, old ways, and, and which is obviously causing the obesity epidemic, which is, is a massive problem. Um, I think education and or knowledge is also part of the issue. We were t- discussing this the other day, and there's some issues around people thinking, oh, well, I'll cut back the amount of Coca-Cola that I drink or, or 
um, down to two or three cans a day, not realising that two or three cans a day is probably far too much for that individual. Um, what we do in sport, I think, can actually be transferred into the general public, which is quite a, it is very simple, which we call a periodised approach to nutrition. Now, there are, I'll talk specifically about football, but as I said, it can, it can be transferred to the general public. During most of the season, um, we look at carbohydrate and carbohydrate periodization. So this is fueling for the work, requ the work required. Sometimes um, players will need to manipulate their protein or their fat intake if they're injured or they need to lose weight, but the majority of the time it's carbohydrate. And I say it's very simple. The days where you do more, you eat more carbohydrate. The do days where you do less, you eat less carbohydrate. So for example, the day before a match or the meal before a match, you'd have a high carbohydrate meal. On match day plus two, for example, where the uh, in training intensity is very low, the carbohydrate intake is low. The fat and protein remains the same. And that way you fuel the body to do the activity or the exercise, but you don't overfuel it so you don't gain weight, you don't become obese. And as I said, I think if the general public took a similar approach to like, how active actually am I? Therefore, I need to fuel depend, uh, based on how active or inactive I actually am. So if I'm sat at a desk all day, perhaps I don't need to eat as much as perhaps someone who is physically active in their day-to-day -day job. Okay, I mean, uh, Andy, you're obviously going to workplaces, I mean, um, which is kind of a bit of advice there in terms of, you know, sitting at the desk, for example, mm. and, and maybe kind of not not eating kind of packets of crisps or um, eating kind of fueling too much. I mean, is that something that you kind of, some of the advice that you give to workplaces? Absolutely. I think, obviously, we need to consider, Richard, on a day-to-day -day basis, you're dealing with high-level performers from a professional sport um, perspective. And I think it, there's a great opportunity for employers to almost consider their employees as their their first their you know sort of their first rate team. So as an employer, ultimately as an employer, if you have healthier employees as a business, um, you're going to be more productive. Um, equally, in in addition to that, healthier employees are more engaged; they're more likely to stay with you. So you know, sort of, it's it's positive for them as individuals in terms of improved health, but it's positive for the business as a whole. But we spend a lot of our time at work, so employers have a huge opportunity to facilitate that and help employees to propagate those healthy habits that they're trying to maintain outside of work and bring it into the workplace as well, so that the two are, you know, sort of um, blend together as opposed to being mutually exclusive. Okay, so so a high level, um, you know, are there things that workplaces can do to help their their staff eat more healthily? Definitely, I think they need to. As a as an employer, you probably need to be really. Um, switched on as to what your employees are doing on a day-to-day -day basis and cater for them accordingly. So to Richard's point, if you are a manual labourer, for example, and you're on your feet all day and you're having to, to be really quite active, if you're, as an employer, providing, um, say, for example, food in the canteen, you probably do want to have a choice of meals that are more geared towards sort of the carbohydrate, sort of heavy heavy side. But then in addition to that, if in a particular in a given workplace if you do have those office workers you don't want to be um, encouraging them to potentially um, access the same meals or for them to to take the same meals as say for example so it's really around sort of tailoring your menus and your offerings in relation to what your employees are doing on a day-to-day -day basis and I mean again kind of you know looking at some of the things in the news lately um, selling out the calories of each different kind of foods that you're eating in restaurants or other things like that I think there was there was something around you know kind of x amount percent um people people assume the x amount i can't remember exactly the percentage but you know a fair bit less if they can see the actual calories um of the food that they're about to eat do you think that's something that's kind of useful or do you think it's again it's just bombarding people with information 
I, I think any, although the, the, not any fad diet should be avoided, and, and as we've discussed, I think any form of diet, whether it is counting calories, counting macronutrients, avoiding sugar, avoiding sugar, salt, anything that gets the general public looking at the nutritional information of food is very beneficial. Because people say, for example, we're in the middle of Lent, or we started Lent at the moment, I know a couple of people have given up sugar. They say, have you ever looked at how much sugar is in a can of baked beans? And it's about 20 grams, and they're shocked. But by th uh, just removing one micronutrient or macronutrient means they look at labels more. So if it is just looking at calories, you're going to be more aware, whether it's in, whether it's in McDonald's or whether it's in a health food shop or a restaurant. If that's what you're focused on, you're going to make better choices because you have something to um, mark yourself against, whether it is 2,000 calories a day or avoiding sugar. Whatever it is, you're going to start looking and paying more attention to what's going into your body. So I think it's got to be about the individual, but if you've got a marker and you stick to that marker, it's going to be beneficial for you. Right, okay. And I guess, you know, it seems to me that there's there's a behavioural change that people need to kind of make, I guess. Um, so, I mean, Ari, from a behavioural point of view, I mean, how important is nutrition in relation to other factors such as physical activity or mental well-being? And what are some of the interventions that you've seen that help people make more healthy choices? Um, yeah, I mean, it, look, we we've got uh, we've got we sit on a on a on a ton of data, both from from Vitality, from from uh, our health and well-being. Um, um, health promotion program, but also from Britain's healthiest work, workplace, and I think at a high level, um, the all the all the data, all the indications are there that there's a clear correlation between sort of nutrition and and, and your general health and productivity. So um, I think Andy alluded to it earlier. Uh, the, the poorer your nutrition, effectively, the the lower is your productivity, and similarly, the overall impact on your health. Um, uh, and as expected. This is very much correlated with uh, with other other behaviours, whether it be physical inactivity, smoking, uh, mental well-being, and depression. Um, the, the the correlations are there between um, between your nutritional behaviour and uh, and and the others. I think I think the biggest thing is that is that it's it's probably one of the more difficult aspects of your life to change. You know, we find, uh, and I think it echoes very much what Richard is saying. You know, just helping people be aware of, of the food they, they're taking in. Uh, I think it, it extends to just the way people behave and, and, and the way people engage with, with different types of behaviors. So physical activity, for example, is quite a quite an, an easier thing to change. It's, it's a part of your day. Uh, people sort of get the concept of, of exercising and, it, and it's something to do. Uh, similarly, smoking is something not to do. It's, it's quite a kind of binary awareness. I think nutrition, and it, it's it's very much encompasses everything in in a, in a person's day, and it, and it's much harder to a really take note of everything you do in the day, and b um, actually make sustainable changes, and, and that's one of the things we uh, we do find with uh, with our members. Right. I mean, which I mean, obviously, I, I alluded to at the beginning of how millennials are particularly um, seem to be kind of subject to to um, you know obesity or kind of you know or to maybe not eating as healthily. I, do you think that the, the, the ed, ed, whole education program needs to be kind of in, in place to instill healthy eating in, in young people? Yeah, absolutely. I think the the more education, the better, but not necessarily 
having it rammed down your throat all the time because then people tend to, you know, uh, retract and be defensive. One point I'll just add on, on behavior is um, coming from a clinical setting is that often people find that if they fail fail on a on a meal, like they eat too much a meal or they eat sugar meal, then that day is a write-off, so they eat whatever they want for the day. Or if that day was a bad day, well, oh, this week's a write-off. And I think that's, some, that's a key message that just because you got it wrong or uh, say you ate too many calories that day, you've still got all the other rest of the days of the week to, to make your target. So just because you ate too much on one day or one meal doesn't mean that you, you write off the rest of the day or the rest of the week because we see that quite a lot, sort of, oh, well, today's gone to pass, I'll just eat a load of ice cream, you know, and that's the way that people do it. It's like just because you ate a little bit too much one day doesn't matter, keep going. And I think that's also part of the education that we need. We need education on where our food comes from. There's an element of uh, food security here as well. Um, people want to know more and more where their food is coming from. I think it was the 2013 horse meat scandal, oh, yeah. mm. which has brought people's attention to, oh, well, I actually don't know what's in my food. And all aspects of food are, uh, all parts of the food industry are subject to criminality. So mm. we need to know what we're eating and, and more and more people want to know. But I think, you know, there's this this level of convenience as well. Everything's so convenient. We live in a very um, short attention span. Millennials, Twitter, everything else, everything's really quick and everything's very easy. So the, the effort that's required to, to get food and everything is less than it would have been for the generation before and the generation before that. So I also think that physical activity is less in this population. Poor food choices through poor education and, and all these things combined which are contributing to this obesity epidemic. So I think, yes, education is key, labelling is key, and perhaps some more information on the consequences of their poor choices as well need to be you know, more readily available for everybody. Right. I mean, and so that education, communication mm. aspect, I mean, in the workplace, Andy, is that something that, you know, that can practically be brought to help employees eat more healthily? Absolutely, Dan. Employers have a huge opportunity to do this because we do spend so much time of our lives at work. Obviously, there's a real motivation for the employers to, to put this structure into place because then ultimately they will have happier, more productive employees. In fact, the just referring to our Britain's Healthiest Workplace evidence that healthier employees are up to 25 days more productive than less healthy employees, which is really quite, it's almost a month's worth of work really in terms of, uh, in terms of time loss potentially. So there's probably three key things that I'll highlight with regards to what employers could potentially do to ensure that if they are introducing a health and well-being initiative, say for example around nutrition, that it actually has um, a greater chance of success. But probably the headline right at the beginning is, to Richard's point, is it's not going to happen overnight. So these things do take time and, and, and can only work over, over a period of time. In terms of one of the first things that we've seen is obviously in providing incentives um, to actually participate or providing rewards for choosing the right healthy behaviours. So again, evidence from our, from our own sort of papers have found that by introducing an incentive, that can increase participation by up to 70%. So again, one key thing or sort of a really nice example that I'll refer to is um, a company that we worked with previously have offered a um, for in the canteen. There are certain choices on a weekly basis that are the healthy options. So whenever you choose the healthy option, you get a card stamped. And then at the end of the month, if you have achieved um, a certain number of stamps, then you go into the draw to actually win a prize. So on a day-by-day, week-by-week basis, again, that healthy food is in front of the employees and the option is there to choose if they wish. And if they do, then they've got the chance to win. But if not, 
then they can um, then again at least the, the intention is there and the education is there from the employer as well. Also creating an authentic culture. So again, ultimately uh, nobody likes being told what to do and we are reliably unpredictable with regards to our choices as humans. So we need to get, as an employer, you need to get buy-in from the employees in terms of actually what is it that we should be introducing. So simple things such as actually consulting with your employees. Um, again, referring back to the point of within any workforce, you're going to have a difference between what people do on a day-to-day -day basis. Some need to be actively concentrating on work. Others need to be physically active. Um, get, get an evaluation as to where they are, where, where their interests are. But then also, um, again, to echo the point, employees want to know where their food is coming from. They have different dietary requirements. So it's up to their employer to support them in that. And then ultimately, they'll have greater participation and engagement with regards to the health and eating initiatives in the workplace. The only thing I think was worth discussing, perhaps, and you keep mm. touching on it with incentives, is that if you have a good budget for food, eating healthy is easy. There are so many companies out here that will deliver fresh vegetables to your house or cooked meals or what have you, but it's it's that the difference between going to buy fast food and buying healthy food, you know, that difference in the price, and that can sometimes be the reason why people tend to go and eat the unhealthy food, not only because it's convenient, but it's a lot cheaper. So if you're in that socioeconomic group where money for food is tight, then you're more likely to then... So if you're incentivizing people to eat healthy or reducing the cost by you know, taking some money off if they're making healthy choices, then this is all going to help overcome that issue. Yeah. And I guess it's also kind of you know, providing those... If you're talking about recipes, you know, making those recipes relevant to different different kind of you know socio-economic groups as well so if they feel that they could get a healthy meal for let's say cheaper you know for, for a lot less money um and it probably it doesn't take too much time to, to put it to, to cook it as well and they're more they'll be more inclined to do that wouldn't they? and so often we get complaints about well you want my son to eat like this i can't afford to do that so myself and one of my colleagues we put together a list of um menus for five pounds a day yeah. on how you can feed an academy footballer for five pounds a day now if you can't afford five pounds a day to feed your family, perhaps you've got some greater issues. But I think most people can afford that. And that was a big hit because we were telling these parents, this is what your boy needs to eat if he want, needs to recover properly and wants to become a professional footballer. And they're putting their hands up rightly and saying, I can't afford to do this. So that was part of what, what work that we did to actually try and produce these menus for you know a few pounds a day. And yeah, it's the education that's yeah. the most important thing, isn't it? Yeah. But that's one of the key things for ourselves as well, even because it is technically more expensive to eat healthily. So again, that's why we obviously offered the, the discount. So there's, I think there's a yeah. good alignment there between those two points. It's funny, again, you talk about the, the millennials being overweight, but it's that thing that millennials can't afford houses because they spend all their money on avocados. So I think there may also be, I think it might be that actually there's the... the the, the gap between you've got really healthy millennials and really unhealthy millennials, perhaps the gap, the gap is growing because social media is a wonderful tool in some ways, you know, promoting people, oh, this is what I'm eating and this is being active and going to the gym and people see that. So I think perhaps on the other end, they might be that other 50% might be healthier than the 50% or the generation before. I don't know. It's just, yeah. just a thought, you know. Yeah, and it's, it's that perception as well, isn't it? It's that perception around healthy food is more expensive. Yeah. Therefore, what's the point in me getting healthy food? Yeah. I can just get the kind of, you know, I can get pizza that I can stick in the oven or your microwave meal or something like that. Yeah. So.
It's a kind of around uh, thinking about it as well. It's more sort of the short term gratification versus the long term reward. So maybe that's something worth thinking about is the fact that it is in the long term cheaper and um, it, it all comes down to say for example planning your meals for the week if you planned your meals for the week then you know what your spend is going to be but equally then there's not going to be ad hoc sort of um, purchases which then obviously is more sort of in the short term yeah it's convenient you've got your convenience meal but long term that's actually going to then cost you more and you're not going to get the health benefit of it. Mm. so one that's one thing certainly from i'm not too sure what you do yourselves here richard but from a, a, in terms of a lot of employers are now starting to introduce or think about programs in relation to that. Mm-hmm. So there is an education. Or it, it shouldn't be assumed that everyone can cook and it shouldn't be assumed that everyone knows how to meal prep and meal plan for the week. So there's a lot of value in even thinking about getting back to basics. And this is how you actually can use a vegetable three ways over three days or, you know, like using mm-hmm. different foods that will last and even just understanding shelf life of things. There's there's a lot in that in terms of, the, and that's the underlying education. What, what several of my colleagues have done, and we've done it introduced in the academy, and it, it's done in the English Institute of Sport, is where they get certain athletes to make videos on how they can make a meal in five minutes, for example. Yeah. And that's part of the education, as well as the cooking courses and so on and so forth, because you say time, time is often an excuse. So they'll have perhaps the top person in that field showing them how they made a meal in five minutes and make the video mm. and send it to the other athletes and these sort of things. So, yeah, mm. cooking classes and all of that is, is very important and, and skills. You know, there's probably some stats on how many millennials don't know how to boil an egg or something mm. like that. And, you know, it just helps as well. Yeah. You know, it helps to, to get people to eat healthily. There's the motivation, and Harry has sort of alluded to, the motivation to change is there, but unfortunately it's not sustained. So particularly, it's a really, it's quite a task for employers um, because they have to then always not be changing the, the, just changing the methods of communication and how they're reaching their employees. It has to be done through various means and ways, but it always has to be done with the same sort of, um, again, one, one really sort of key thing that a lot of employers are now starting to do is creating a brand around their health and well-being initiative. So again, employees can recognize, okay, there's going to be a message with regards to something to do with health and well-being. So they'll, you know, sort of, they'll, they'll recognize it. And that could be coming through, again, via social media, via through email, whatever method is right for the employer. But they've got to keep the message consistent, keep the message the same, so that at various touch points throughout that journey, employees will always be getting the same information and promoting the same healthy habits. Well, I think this uh, that's a, a good place to end the podcast, but I, I normally do ask just for one last piece of advice that you'd give to a, either an employer or an employee to help improve healthy eating in the workplace. Um, well, you know, I just, um, I'd almost combine a, a bunch of the, the, the comments that were made here. I mean, we've, we've seen in, in various different avenues of health and well-being that uh, incentives work incentives work to get people to um, to to change their behavior and follow the right uh, what we consider the right behavior um, and I think if you if you kind of take into account the the significant benefit that that we do offer through the vitality program uh, I, I think members really do see the value in it uh, and add that to Richard's point about you know one bad meal doesn't doesn't end at all you know it's uh, it's it's just because you know shifting nutrition is about all meals you don't have to figure out all meals at once so um you know we keep working to 
to um, evolve the program and find find ways to to make the incentives even more appealing. But uh, it, it, we we really are excited by 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 the the start that this healthy food benefit has had, and we we hope to have an even greater impact going down the line. Andy, so similar to the Vitality program, um, as an employer, uh, this is sort of a, my sort of advice to them really is as they are already doing and as everyone is aware is that you can't address anything in isolation. So again, your nutrition message has to line up with your physical activity message, with your stress management message. So I suppose my headline really is if, if you're going to address anything, it must be done in the context of a holistic approach. Again, focusing on all elements of um, employee health and well-being. And finally, Richard. Yes, I completely agree with all of those points. I think an, an over... An overview final point would be keep it simple, have an achievable goal and stick to that goal, you know, stick to that target. And, you know, it's not going to be right all of the time, but as long as you're heading in the right direction, you're going to start seeing those those benefits. And if there was one uh, for, for the individual, if there's one thing I would ask or recommend they remove is the simple sugars, cut down on the intake of simple sugars and you'll see it start to see benefits relatively quickly once you start to eliminate that from your diet. Great. Thanks to all of our panellists and thanks to everyone for listening today. I hope you found it useful and enjoyable.